five, 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 Okay, let's run. Let's count them down. Hello, everybody, and welcome to a special year-end edition of the Top 5 Film Dive. My name is Kurt Morrison. I'm your host for the podcast. And today, I'm going to be bringing to you my Top 5 Documentaries of 2020. Now, a very confusing and strange year in regards to theatrical releases. That was 2020. But that doesn't mean that there wasn't fantastic content and documentary filmmaking released throughout uh, services like HBO, Showtime, Netflix, and premium video on demand, again, i.e. ordering something off your television there, flourished with great and consistent quality content throughout 2020. And 2020 was not a waste when it comes to documentary filmmaking. Generally, it is a genre of film that usually flourishes in independent um, markets. Um, and I think things along the lines of uh, Netflix and Amazon Prime definitely took advantage of great filmmakers and great films looking for a place for their content to go uh, and get a lot of eyes seen on it. Um, that being said, I found that as 2020 went on, I found more and more gems out there that today I'm really excited to share with you. Um, I also really dipped my toe into the documentary filmmaking genre um, by meeting many people in the film industry here in the city of Toronto, Ontario, Canada. I had a couple of guests on my show, one of them being a friend of mine, uh, near and dear friend of mine, Mr. Rich Williamson, who is a documentary filmmaker um, who was part of my 1995 Best of episode. And it was very, very cool to see and hear uh, some insights, not only about the industry, but how the films in this genre actually get made. So without further ado, guys, I want to jump into my list. And my number five is My Octopus Teacher. Now, this I remember the day when it all started, seeing this really strange thing. This is a Netflix original film directed by Pippa Elrich and James Reed, and honestly plays out as if it was ripped from like a Disney Pixar movie. So it follows a fellow filmmaker named Craig Foster, who is navigating, examining, and documenting the Cape Peninsula, which is exposed to the cold Bengule current of the Atlantic Ocean. Now, this is right off of the coast of South Africa. The sweet spot, sweet spot of the documentary and its title comes from a curious and precocious young octopus that catches Craig's attention, but more importantly, catches his. As this young octopus allows Craig to see where she sleeps, how she lives, how she eats, and how she plays. This relationship between Craig and the octopus is beautifully shot over the course of about a year and showcases how truly amazing the ecosystem underwater is, but more importantly, how incredibly intelligent these creatures are. In a year where we have seen how precious and short life can be, my octopus teacher was able to pack a loving and heartfelt punch, teaching Foster and us as the viewer a lesson on the fragility of life and humanity's connection with nature. I cannot recommend this documentary enough. It's so beautifully done and really hit an emotional core for me. I was able to watch this with my daughter and for her and I to both be able to share this movie and experience it both emotionally, uh, but intellectually was something uh, that I'll truly remember. It was a very, very um, beautiful memory and actually opened the doors for a conversation with my daughter to explain the cycles of you know life and death and how things that you know might not necessarily uh, be the things that we live in, how we can affect them and how they can affect us. It was it was a truly beautiful experience. So my number five is my 
octopus teacher. On to my number four, which is You Cannot Kill David Arquette. Now, actor David Arquette has made for a name for himself over the last three decades as a funny, eccentric, and, and sometimes out-of-the-box actor. But the star of all four Scream films, Ready to Rumble and Never Been Kissed, has always been a fan and has had one diehard passion that he's somewhat been able to fulfill back in the late 1990s, and that is to be a professional wrestler. Now, after winning the World Heavyweight title back in 1998 in WCW World Championship Wrestling, a memory I have a vivid remembrance of, Arquette was kind of criticized and, for lack of a better word, ostracized by those within the wrestling community as being a poser and, and someone who really didn't deserve to wear something so prestigious within the industry. Fast forward 20 years to 2017, where director David Darg and Price James began filming Arquette, who now in his mid-40s is pining for a chance to enter the squared circle one more time and get a taste of the wrestling business that he oh so loves. Legends of Wrestling, one of the biggest events of the year, 10,000 fans in attendance as Ken Anderson takes on David Arquette. The film brings to light several things. First of being, actually, how downright funny and goofy of a guy Arquette is. He's incredibly likable, and his boy-like demeanor made this kind of quasi-underdog story incredibly fun and easy to watch. And clocking in at a fast-paced 90 minutes, You Cannot Kill David Arquette as a prime example of the kind of uplifting storytelling that 2020 really needed. I enjoyed it not only as a movie fan, but, but as a diehard wrestling fan as well. And yes, guys, I got to admit, I too share a passion for professional wrestling. I've loved it ever since I was a kid. For God's sakes, I even saw the moment when David Arquette won the World Heavyweight Championship back in 98, 1998. And I've loved it ever since I was a kid, checking on a weekly basis. I still deep dive into the ongoings of the WWE, AEW, and some of these other indie brands. So I empathize with him. And you know, I was actually quite jealous that he gets to train and experience this kind of childhood-like dream once again. It's a tough industry, guys, both physically and mentally, and you know where very few newcomers, let alone actors, are let into the brotherhood that is professional wrestling. And the doc really brings that to light as we see David not only go through this rounds of training, um, but quite frankly, getting the shit kicked out of him uh, by guys within the industry, both trainers and fellow wrestlers. Um, and an almost like, you have to earn your spot to be here, kid, type of initiation. Um, and you see this throughout the film and I gotta be honest, man, he takes it like a fucking champ almost to a point of dying. And, and I, I mean that literally. And I think that's one of the climax points of the movie is he pushes himself in the ring to a point of near death, but that goes to show you again, the heart and the dedication and the true grit uh, of Arquette. He's an Uber celebrity, you know, or has a beautiful wife, has had a fantastic career, has great kids who are very supportive of him, as is his wife. Um, but that doesn't mean that you just give up on yourself and your goals. And as corny as it may sound, the film's main theme of, you know, keep pushing, keep working hard, persevere against the odds, really got to, really got to the core of me. And uh, was a fun adventure to take with a celebrity whom I now have a unlimited amount of respect for. Guys, You Cannot Kill David Arquette is streaming this week on Netflix, and I highly recommend it. It is my number four documentary of 2020. My number three is easily the biggest surprise of the year for me on the documentary front. And that was simply due to the fact that I knew nothing. And I mean, literally nothing about the band, the Bee Gees. When I say the Bee Gees, instantly, you probably think of this. Or this. Or this. 
and rightfully so. But the trio of Gibb brothers from Australia are so much more than what they are fundamentally remembered for. And that is, of course, being the disco era gods which with high-pitched melodies. How Can You Mend a Broken Heart, directed by Frank Marshall, chronicles the lives, and bro- lives of brothers Barry, Robin, and Maurice, introducing us to them when they're kids and how the trio traveled Australia to become sort of like a 60s Aussie sensation during a time when rock and roll was really just taking shape. Having ever really known only about one aspect of their careers, the documentary gives us insight into how impactful the band actually was, having written songs that I had never known that were actually theirs. Songs that I grew up on, like To Love Somebody. Baby, you don't know what it's like To love somebody To love somebody The way I love you Massachusetts. you were here and how can you mend a broken heart i could never see tomorrow i was never told about the sorrows all number one hits for the band between 1967 and 1971 through home movies and interviews from all three of the brothers we gain insight into the success but turmoil behind the scenes between these favorite sons of uh, Australia. The most fascinating part to me was the metamorphosis of the band, going from this like charming, harmonized, and melody-driven 60s soulful vibe, which I would say kind of truly mimicked a cross between both you know uh, the Motown-era style music and the Beatles at the time, to this like rugged, edgy-looking, kind of more disco-tech sound and vibe by 1975, spawned by Jive Talk. We all know, and I'll admit, I personally love. But to understand the concepts used for recording and the brilliance of the Gibbs Brothers songwriting and the astronomical, and I mean like huge success that followed the Bee Gees, when they released the soundtrack for Saturday Night Fever in 1977, was was awe-inspiring. I, I, there's no other word to use it, guys. Um, absolutely awe-inspiring to understand. As interviews with their producers and fellow bandmates, which, by the way, you probably didn't know, there wasn't just three of them when they are at the peak of their success, made for grabbing entertainment for both the eyes and the ears. When I started dissecting the numbers, um, honestly, it's no wonder that they sold over 100 million albums and had six consecutive number one singles from 1977 to 1979, inextricably tied to the disco era's defining movie, a film that, of course, features the propulsive beat in step with the strut of the film star, John Travolta, obviously the film being Saturday Night Fever, which today acts as kind of like a time capsule to a musical revolution that was loved and then so quickly hated. Directed by Frank Marshall, How Can You Mend a Broken Heart is incredibly entertaining informative, and probably the best musical documentary I've seen HBO ever release. The lives and careers of Barry, Robin, and Maurice are the stuff that movies are made of. Honestly, I would love to see some sort of biopic made on these three fellas. The film pays tribute in the most beautiful and heartfelt of ways. And How Can You Mend a Broken Heart is my number three documentary of 2020. 
My number two documentary is a Shutter exclusive that came out just shortly after Halloween of this year, showcasing one of the most important, influential, and scary movies of all time by none other than the man who actually made the film himself. This is Bill Friedkin, day one, take one. The Exorcist came out the day after Christmas in 1973 and became a box office juggernaut, raking in $441 million at the global box office. Now, let me help you wrap your head around that for a second. A horror movie about a girl being possessed by a demon made the equivalent in today's box office dollars to $1.04 billion when released. In 1973. So that means if the film today was released, it would have made more money than any of the last two Jumanji movies, every X-Men movie, and every DC comic book superhero film other than Aquaman. Wrap your head around those numbers, folks, because to say The Exorcist was a phenomenon is an understatement. Leap of faith. William Friedkin on The Exorcist is a simple sit down with the director of the film, by documentarian Alexander Philippe, which dissects Friedkin's state of mind regarding scenes, script, choice of music, casting what-ifs, casting-wise, rewrites arguments, and every little detail in between. I knew exactly how I wanted to make it. I marked up my own copy of the hardcover. I didn't want any backstory, no flashbacks. Which in turn has created one of the most time-tested horror films ever. I had watched The Exorcist two weeks prior to this documentary and, and a film which, I don't know, I'd probably not seen in about 20 years. Not because I don't like it, but because I remember the impact it had on me as a 12-year-old boy. It didn't quite scare the shit out of me, but I can recall like the mind games it created after watching it. Almost like as if the film and its imagery was playing like a game of mental chess with me afterwards. And I think that's the brilliance of Friedkin and The Exorcist. It is, it's a scary film. We can all agree upon that, undoubtedly. But things stick with you afterwards. and You begin to hear and see the shadows and the creaks in your house or get goosebumps when a window is accidentally left open. I knew that the film was based on a novel by William Peter Blatty. And it actually ended up being a national bestseller when it first came out back in the early 70s. And According to the documentary, it was actually quite different in aspects from the finished film product. But to understand what was on the page and then what was shot and have Freed can balance both the text respectfully and his own creative vision is just mesmerizing, absolutely mesmerizing experience. So especially as a film fan, um, I'm obsessed with the creative process of some of Hollywood's elite. And in my review back in November, I spoke of Alexander Philippe's uh, body of work as, as he's now tackled uh, Alfred Hitchcock and Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho, Ridley Scott's Alien, and now The Exorcist. And I'm very interested to see what he tackles next as a documentarian because the content he's putting out is absolute quality. Hurricane Billy, as he became known as in the 1970s, is still to the day pretty ballsy as fuck, guys. And, and it shows on screen as he's interviewed. But that fine line between confidence and cockiness is, is walked well by Friedkin. And I firmly believe that because of his work on The French Connection, and then The Exorcist, his name has to be uttered as one of those all-time greats because the 1970s was a decade that he dominated as a filmmaker. Leap of Faith is a Shutter exclusive, and you guys can stream it now with a Shutter subscription. Please, I insist, if you are a film fan, go check it out. 
And now with that, we jump to my number one documentary of the year. And this came literally as a bottom of the ninth, 12th round knockout submission, literally two days before the year wrapped. Uh, and it's a film that chronicles the life and lies of Imelda Marcos, the former first lady of the Philippines. And the documentary is known as The Kingmaker. When I became first lady, it became demanding for me. I have to dress up and make myself more beautiful because the poor always looks for a star in the dark of the night. It's directed by Lauren Greenfield, and it's an insightful, jaw-dropping documentary. Um, and when I say it's an experience, I, I truly mean that. This is an absolute experience of a film. Uh, a lot of emotion. I was pissed off. I was in disbelief. Um, I could not believe what I was watching. And I don't really want to go into spoilers for this one, guys, because uh, I really would like you guys to track it down. It's streaming here on Crave in Canada. Uh, and I believe you can find it on Showtime in the United States. Uh, most of you guys, who, some of you, my listeners overseas, you guys can probably find this on any streaming websites. Um, but the film is essentially divided into two parts, following, following the chronology of the events of the Marcos's life. In the first half, focuses on Imelda's life from the time she became the first lady of the Philippines in 1965 through the 21 years where she and her husband ruled until they were disposed and forced into exile in 1986. The second half of the film, though, really features survivors of her, her husband's declaration of martial law and focuses on the political comeback of the family. Her big dream is to restore the greatness of the Marcos family. It's scary if these people are brought to power again. I was always criticized for being excessive, but that is mothering. Um, her son, Bong Bong Marcos, who right now is actually in a predominant uh, and very pow powerful position um, in the Philippines in their politics, uh, really takes front and center uh, while his mother kind of uh, moves off uh, in the background in its second part. And the one thing that I really enjoyed about Greenfield's uh, direction in this is she really characterizes Amelda as like the unreliable narrator. Now, for those of you who, who know storytelling, the unreliable narrator is, um, you know, a, a la like an Edward Norton in the uh, in Fight Club, where you know it's that person who you want to listen to what they're saying, but do you actually really believe every word that's coming out of their mouth? Amanda um, Marcos has gotten away with murder. That case remains unresolved. Why will I do that? I, I had nothing against him. Um, guys, it's a fascinating documentary, and it's there's a lot of shades of what's been happening in the United States lately. Um, it's it's truly, truly one of the best documentaries I've ever seen. Um, and, and I highly recommend that all of you guys check out The Kingmaker. And that being said, guys, that wraps up my top five documentaries of 2020. Thank you to all for all of you, pardon me, for listening and, and giving me feedback over the course of the year. Um, it has been a, a fantastic year for me. And this uh, idea that I had in my mind for so long that I was able to launch and really uh, get out. And all of you have been wonderful and supportive. And I'm so, so grateful for the 2020 that I had in our online film community and online uh, podcast community, I can say as well. That being said, guys, if you'd like to be a guest on the top five film dive, please give me a shout on our social media. I'm always checking 
our DMs. Um, let me know if there's a topic, if there's a year, or perhaps even like a film you would just like to dissect. Um, and that is also going to be something that I'm going to be surprising you guys with uh, later on in the week. Also, the top five films of 2020 I'm going to be dropping in a few days with my good friend, Mr. Stephen Mur Murphy, a.k.a. Uh, nocturnal reviews. So please check that out when it hits Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your streaming from. Here's to 2021, guys. Let's put 2020 in our rearview mirrors. And until next time, signing off.